Welcome to King of Glory Lutheran Church Education Podcast. We are a Christian community of faith located in Williamsburg, Virginia. For more information, please visit us on the web at kogva.org. So I went, um, somebody in the early class asked me to, um, to um, head some questions. And so I went to his home and uh, he started a fire. And so I took a picture of the fire. And, um, you know, probably has nothing to do with the topic of this course. <laughs> well, or does it? I um, see some horns in there, though. <laughs> on, on the screen or on your handout today is uh, the opening prayer. Together we read and pray. Let me never think, O Eternal Father, that I am here to stay. Let me still remember that I am a stranger and a pilgrim on the earth. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Preserve me by thy grace, good Lord, from so losing myself in the joys of earth, and I may have no longing left for the pure joys of heaven. Let not the happiness of this day become a snare to my too worldly heart, and if instead of happiness I have today suffered any disappointment or defeat, if there has been any sorrow where I have looked for joy, or sickness where I have looked for help, give me grace to accept it from thy hand as a loving reminder that this is not my home. Yeah, and so our uh, destination because it matters. Um, we have here the um, um, the group that met Tuesday morning at uh, so you know who the um, from the left Kevin Carla uh, who uh, was part of the first class and next to him is Ted Hansen and he was they were both sitting here in early class. Uh, Cookie is here, and Jim is here in this class. Elizabeth Keller, she was at the early class. Um, I was there, and then Jim Dobler, who's on the uh, extreme on the extreme right. And um, Dr. Philip was not there. Ned, my three-year-old, woke up vomiting in the middle of the night the night before, so I had to stay home with him. But he's better now, so sorry to have missed him. Okay. Um, so, comments? It's not up there. Oh, not there. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> like, what? What? Here go. I'm sorry. Here we go. 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 Nice group. Nice group. So this was submitted to me by Dr. Phillips earlier in the week. So he uh, is going to uh, talk about this. So the uh, first philosopher may have been a talking snake. Uh, we can see this misleading argument presented to Eve. Um, it gets her into trouble. Um, so I think this brings out both the danger of philosophy 
and perhaps the potential, potential usefulness of philosophy. So, here we have Eve being tricked by her reasoning into making a big mistake, right? So philosophy is being put to a bad end here. Um, but the snake is, the argument the snake is giving is not so good. It's not a very good argument. And it would have been nice if there had been a philosopher there to say, wait a minute, snake, you're, you're mixing up two different notions of sin, or you're mixing up predetermination and foreknowledge. Those might not be the same thing, right? So, um, C.S. Lewis said, um, there must be philosophy, if for no other reason than, than that there's so much bad philosophy. So, uh, you know, we've got to deal with the fact that there are people like the snake who are giving misleading arguments that can lead people in the wrong direction. And um, having good philosophy or other philosophy account of that uh, is, is important. So, I think it brings out both the danger and the usefulness of philosophy. Uh, Plus, it's funny. So. <laughs> and, you know, I got it. Uh, there's, there's hope for Dr. Philip. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, there is danger in any profession. Um, anytime people uh, put themselves forward in front of other people based on their education and their commitments, and I am painfully aware of the dangers that go along with being a pastor. Um, there, there is no way that in the pastoral role you can be for all people everything that they need at all times, and so um, it's with um, it's a, it's another it's another factor of life where we are dependent on God's grace and His mercy. Okay, free will and the Lutheran confessions, Luther and the bondage of the will. Um, this, this is something that was key um, in the two philosophical presentations that were presented, uh, class two and class four. And um, the, because of that, I started looking at Luther's book, The Bondage of the Will, that he wrote in response to Erasmus, who was the great humanist, great biblical scholar. Um, it was Erasmus's Greek manuscript of the New Testament that Luther used to translate the German edition of his Bible. It became the definitive, it became, it standardized the German language. That's why Luther is considered to be a cultural hero in Germany because his Bible standardized the German language. Um, and, and it was Erasmus's document, the Greek manuscript that Erasmus put together from various uh, sources that Luther used. Um, Erasmus was very concerned about the direction that Luther was headed with his radical theology. And so in 1524, he delivered to Luther a treatise um, in which he challenged Luther on his position of the will. And a year later, Luther produced this incredibly large book that is titled On the Bondage of the Will. Now I need to go from the 16th century to yesterday afternoon. 
<laughs> so yesterday afternoon, I was sitting in the workroom of the office working on this PowerPoint presentation. Um, and um, I was looking at this particular issue, and there on a counter that I had that I had seen many times were five books that I had seen many times. Because every Monday morning, uh, usually around pretty close to 10 minutes till 9, until 9.30, Judy and I sit at that very table and we go through the tear-off sheets, the sign-in sheets. We do this part of the Connections Ministry. We write down the names of frequent visitors and first-time visitors. And those are the people that we try to keep in our hearts and our prayers and also to reach out to them uh, for, um, in any way that we can. And those books, and I have three of them, uh, three of them are um, this three-volume set, What Luther Says. Um, and and the th- one of the other books was this book, From Luther to Kierkegaard, uh, a history of theology, a study in the history of theology by Jaroslav Pelikan, published in 1950. These six books were donated to the church by Pastor Ernst Meyer, Chaplain Ernst Meyer, whose um, two daughters sat last week at this front table. Uh, the, the Brody and uh, and the, um, the what? Ted Drake. Ted Carol Drake. Drake, right. Those are daughters of Pastor Ernst Meyer. This was from his library. Um, and so because I was working on this, I was um, immediately wanted to see what Luther said about conversion and free will. And then when I picked this up, it was like, whoa. Um, let me read the first paragraph of this book. Lutheranism has had to face the problem of its relationship to philosophy ever since the Reformation. Well, that sentence right there nailed me. But if we begin our examination of the interrelations between Lutheranism and philosophy with the period of the Reformation, we must be perfectly clear about the fact that Luther was not a philosopher, nor, for that matter, did he want to be one. Luther's great accomplishment was not philosophical, nor yet theological, but evangelical. ELCA stands for what? Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Um, Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church in Fairbanks, Alaska. Many Lutheran congregations include the word evangelical because the word evangelical carries a very specific meaning and connotation. Let me read on. It was Mark Luther's divinely appointed task to restore to its proper centrality the assertion that in the forgiveness of sins, Jesus Christ had become the Lord and the Savior, to bear personal testimony to that lordship, and thus to reassert in all its strength the true Christian gospel. 
This is not theology as that word is usually understood. For theology, in the usual sense of the word, does not come until after this personal relationship has been established. Until the Christian man gets down to thinking it over. Much less than is it philosophy for any kind of philosophy, even poor philosophy, <laughs> is a task of reason. It's not a task of reason, but the gospel is a gift of God. As Karl Hall, he was a 19th century Lutheran philosopher and theologian, has pointed out the reformer thought of himself primarily as an expositor of holy scriptures, and he deliberately sought to avoid being classified with those whose speculative talents aroused the admiration of his contemporaries. Hence, his familiar distinction between the Theologia Crucis and the Theologia Gloria. In other words, that Luther said that all theology can be divided between a theology of glory, in which God is, my God is so great, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are his, the rivers are his, the stars are his handiwork too. That's a theology of glory. And there's a great, big, beautiful, strong wall between that and the theology of the cross. It's radically different. If you want a place to look for that, clearly it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, beginning with verse 17, probably through verse 27 and 28. Because the theology of the cross identifies that God is to be revealed not in the glories of creation, although there is a natural knowledge of God that we can deduce from the glories, but rather the true God is revealed in the, uh, in the, in the incarnation that God chose to become a human being born in a stable uh, to, a vir- to, to, a, to a virgin, hello, and that this man... Um, would die as a criminal publicly on a cross, um, that is where Luther said theology, our understanding of who God is, finally is revealed. And so Luther in his down-to-earth theology really, um, because so much of the theology of the cross is faith, Believing the unbelievable, uh, that is why he called philosophy a whore, saying you can use your reason to believe anything, you know, you can prove anything you want to believe. But we also need to make it absolutely clear <coughs> that Luther was schooled um, in, in philosophy and that in his writings, and his writings were prolific. Uh, again and again, he resorts to philosophical arguments and to philosophical categories and to Aristotle. Um, so he he said, you know, there's no place for... But, but at the same time, he used philosophy in order to make sure that his arguments uh, were rational to people. The other thing is that when it comes to the free will, uh, and this is... Uh, by 1527... Luther had locked into and summarized his position. Uh, let me um, read 
just a little bit of Um, this is quotes on the will of man, um, and he has hundreds of quotes in this on the will of man uh, from the bondage of the will. Um, the purpose of our discussion is to inquire what free will is able to do in what it is merely passive and what its attitude toward the grace of God. Um, and here, Luther was absolutely clear that we, as human beings in this world, needed to use our free will and our reasoning in order to create a world in which there was peace and stability and that we should use our mind in order how to organize our household, how to run our farm, how to organize our shop, how to organize the community, um, how to re relate to government and to the army. And he absolutely resisted the radical reformers believing that they could, they could determine that on the basis of scripture. And so Calvin established a biblical government in Geneva. Um, the Anabaptists, again, also tried to get on the basis, and Luther said, you can't do that because that's not what the Bible is all about. The Bible is about God's grace. Um, it's about the theology of the cross. It's not about this other world where we are to use our good sense and to come out of using our reason and philosophy and whatever else in order to establish a just world and to make sure that the evildoer is punished, and the one who does right is rewarded. Romans chapter 13. That's where we find that. That is what Luther took off on. Um, and like St. Paul, Luther never endorsed any kind of a government. He never endorsed any kind of church polity, you know, um, and, and presbyters and, and um, Presbyterians, and to a certain extent, you know, these other Protestant denominations, they all feel that the Bible tells them what kind of church polity government you should have. Lutherans have never gone into that. And so we have all different kinds of church polity, um, which is basically a congregational policy. But here, um, a congregation can have a... Um, what's, what's our... Um, where there's a board of directors who follows a uh, policy-based governance. You mean policy-based governance? And Luther would say, absolutely. Use the best organizational thinking that you can in order to make sure that the organization can run smoothly and, and justly. So, um, so, by 1527, when the catechism was written, all that great big book about free will is summarized in this phrase. It's on your handout. Uh, I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. So that's what uh, Luther is about. On the handout, I want to read this quote in the middle of the first page. 
a quote from the body to the will. This is tough. This is really, really tough. And the wonderful thing about Luther is that he acknowledges in writing that it's tough. Omnipotence and foreknowledge of God, you know, the kind of thing we talk about, I repeat, utterly destroy the doctrine of free will. Doubtless it gives the greatest possible offense to common sense or natural reason that God, who is proclaimed as being full of mercy and goodness and so on, um, Dr. Philip and my class earlier last year, Good God, Bad mm -hmm. World, that's exactly what we struggled with. Mm -hmm. And that's what Christians continue to struggle with when we talk about theodicy, defending God's action in light of the fact that he's supposed to be, that he is, I'm sorry, that he is a loving God, you know, and merciful. Let's keep that in there. Yeah, okay, right. <laughs> Who is proclaimed as being full of mercy and goodness and so on, should of his own mere will abandon, pardon, and damn men as though he delighted in the sins and great eternal torments of such poor wretches. Pharaoh, Judas are the two biblical examples that wrapped my dad around the axle. Those were the two figures in scripture that my dad, he just, he was, it, it, every time he dealt with that, he, he dissolved. He, he couldn't go. Um, it seems an iniquitous, cruel, intolerable thought to think of God. And it is this that has been such a stumbling block to so many great men down through the ages. And who would not stumble at it? I have stumbled at it myself more than once down to the deepest pit of despair so that I wish I had never been made a man. That was before I knew how health-giving that despair was and how close to grace. And that's where the whole function of the law comes in. That the law, as Luther taught it, and as um, our Missouri Synod um, theologian, Dr. C.F.W. Walther, in his um, book, The Distinction Between Law and Gospel, because he took off on that, where it is so clear that the function of the law is to destroy any thinking that we can come to God with anything other than empty hand, empty hands as a beggar at the foot of the cross. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling. That's that's where that that last health giving that despair was. Because Luther felt until the boil is lanced and all this stuff is revealed for whatever, the gospel really only becomes kind of a nice, nice story. It's not. So. Should I jump in? Yes, okay. please. Um, so I wanted to give a picture that I, I think captures Luther's idea that we cannot, by our own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, uh, but still allows a role for free will uh, in the process of conversion. So, 
I like this idea of prevenient grace, or you could call it enabling grace, uh, which comes from John Wesley. So, for him, uh, prevenient grace is the Holy Spirit creating the first wish to please God, the first dawn of light concerning His will, and the first slight transient conviction of having sinned against Him. So the idea is, we're totally dead in our sins, um, in our own strength, we could not, you know, even realize what we needed that we needed uh, to repent, that we needed God, right? But um, the whole, God sends the Holy Spirit uh, to sort of create this glimmer in us, gives us enough grace that we can see the problem and have enough strength that we could we could change, right? So um, Luther is right. We cannot believe in Christ by our own strength. We need grace. We need the Holy Spirit to call us, but. Um, and this is the idea of prevenient grace, is that it's, it's a resistible call, right? So it gives you enough grace that you're able to come to faith, but you could also still resist this grace and not come to faith. So, um, there's nothing you can do totally on your own. You need grace, but you still, the grace doesn't, you know, make it unavoidable that you'll uh, become a Christian. You could still resist, and that's the role for free will, is once you have this prevenient grace... Once you're able, once you do have the strength from God to choose, you could still refrain. You could still not choose um, to become a Christian. And so that's where the role for free will uh, comes in. And I think there's evidence for this in that verse, uh, Matthew 23, uh, 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Right, so there's still a role for the human will in resisting this call. Right, you know, God wants, you know, uh, Christ calls all men unto Him, but some resist, and the, there is a role for free will, free will in that. Um, so it's only because of grace that we are free to repent and turn to God. Uh, but we still have the freedom to resist the call of God. So maybe that's a more pro-free will uh, viewpoint. Um, but it captures Luther's core idea that you can't do it by your own strength. Right? Any thoughts on that uh, picture? Let's see. Okay. So there's a little bit of free will in there. Yeah. yeah. So what, I'm, what I've been... Um, out of my orientation was that we do not have the will to say yes to God, but we do have the will to say no to God. Mm -hmm. we, can, we can do that. And that is why um, the confirmation vow, when I was 12 years old, and a confirmation vow that many of us who were <coughs> raised Lutheran and were confirmed, uh, before, uh, before 1975, 70. If you were confirmed before 1970, um, regardless of what denomination, you, of what Lutheran you were, ALC, LCA, Wisconsin, or Missouri, the confirmation vow was the same for Lutherans. And a confirmation vow is that we pledge to be faithful in the use of the means of grace. Um, and, that, um, and that we also promise to be faithful uh, to our confession of the Apostles' Creed, uh, to the point of death. Um, and, and that is why the means of grace, scriptures, baptism, and Holy Communion, became so important. 
And that's why going to church and reading your Bible became so very important. Because if you stopped going to church and you stopped reading the Bible, guess what? You were unplugging yourself from God's grace. It no longer had the opportunity to keep you active in your relationship. And that's why Lutheran pastors, including myself, and certainly my father, really drummed it in that being faithful in the use of the means of grace, attending church, hearing the word, receiving the sacrament, reading the word, became so important if you were going to maintain your, your faith. And, your, and, and along with that was the, the terror of letting us know that we had, we had the choice of not going to church, not reading the Bible, and if you did that, yeah, it was really bad, it would be bad news, and it has been bad news. Uh, and of course, uh, Lutherans and Lutheran pastors, Lutheran educators um, have struggled with that. You know, how, how do we educate our young people? How do we bring them up uh, in, in the tradition in a way that keeps them alive in the faith? Um, and it's obvious that what we've done in the Lutheran church, what Christians across the board have done has not been effective as we've lost uh, the millennials, uh, uh, the increase of the nuns, you know, those who check none. I have no religious none. So it's um, free will is, and, and it's um, destructive force is certainly there. So, so when you say uh, free to say no, not free to say yes, yes, is the idea. So, in the case where you don't say no, did you freely omit to say no or refrain from saying no? How do you think about that aspect? Of it? Or what happens when you don't freely say no? Was that something you freely did, or refraining from that? Or I don't know. Okay, it's it's a miracle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, there's a retired pastor in this congregation who has brothers. Uh, he himself, they, they were all sons of a Lutheran pastor. And, um, and one is a Lutheran pastor and others um, are no longer in the faith. And it's just not that family. It's, it's many families uh, where... Children have been raised in the church, and they have chosen not to remain faithful. Uh, they are not professing Christians, and it's a, a very, you know, why? On the other hand, um, why is it that some children um, grow up to adults who are very active in the church uh, and thrive in the community? and become Sunday school teachers and evangelists and, and work in the church. Why, why do some and others not? That, again, I think is part of the mystery that we have to, that we have to struggle with. Uh, it's, it's not only that God chooses to damn certain people, according to Luther. You know, I think according to our reason, if we see that, uh, but why are there some that the Holy Spirit works? And why are there some people... Uh, who were raised without any church at all, without any, you know, later in life, 
become Christians and become these wonderful exemplary Christians. C.S. Lewis, you know, was an atheist, and then God touches him, and he becomes a great apologist for the Christian faith. And there are, are many, um, my in my pastoral experience, the people who were most turned on and who really lived their faith were people who were not raised in the church, but who discovered the gospel later in life. And suddenly they were, they said, wow, this is, I've been looking for this. So, it's, yeah. So, when you talked about um, unplugging yourself from the means of grace, would Luther say that endangers your salvation? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. See, he he was really, um, in fact, um, he, and part of it, you have to understand, part of the way Lutherans have been shaped is because of Luther's own personality. And I, I believe uh, that Luther had bipolar disease, that he was manic depressive. Um, and that explains so many things. On the one hand, it explains his prodigious output, um, that he wrote without a computer. Uh, he had ascribed sometimes, but most of the stuff he wrote the stuff out himself. Um, he, he published books, his translated works, and not all his works have been translated, 55 volumes, 55 volumes. Um, and, and this is excerpts from those 55 volumes, these three volumes, what Luther says. So in addition to that, he um, held forth with Katie, his wife, a house that was always filled with students. They often had as many as 20 people at the table. He, um, he, he lectured in the university. He preached two-hour sermons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And these sermons, what? True Pentecostal. <laughs> <laughs> when, when he got going, he got going. And he, he did this brilliant mind. And when his mind was going, it was like, yeah. But also well documented by himself and others was periods of onfectum, where he considered under the attack of the devil, in which he was not functioning for weeks at a time, where he, he didn't do anything. Um, and, and so he realized he had enough self-awareness that he realized that he could not depend on his own reason or his own emotional strength. Because when he was down, he couldn't imagine that God would love a bag of maggots such as he. That's what he called himself, a bag of maggots, and other things that was in that. But then on other times, when he was up, he didn't need God because he had it all figured out. And he, he realized that he could not... Uh, that because of his own experience was that he needed something that he could focus on, and that's why for Luther and for Lutherans, the term objective means of grace, objective means of grace became so important. Objective. The Word, the Bible, Scripture. Objective. Baptism, water, feelable stuff, Holy Communion, objective bread and wine. And so when Luther was in the depths of onfectum, uh, struggling, uh, it is said, and he also writes about that, that he would beat on his chest to the rhythm of the German of I am baptized, I am baptized, I am baptized, I am baptized, because for him, that was the objective moment where God adopted him and made him his child in spite of what he felt. 
because he was feeling that he didn't deserve. And so Luther, um, that's why he, he did not like philosophy. You know, he he uh, he he felt that it was based on 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 reason, and that reason could go. You could take reason anywhere. That he, and he also thought that scholasticism and the philosophers that he was a beneficiary of had really, in cooperation with the Roman Catholic Church, had um, um, destroyed the gospel. That was all reason. It was what we did. Good works. Uh, salvation. So, now, the reason yes. I ask that question is because I'm a little uncomfortable with the converse of saying, well, then if you avail yourself of the means of grace, you assure your salvation. Because that Failing yourself for the means of grace doesn't necessarily say anything about your heart. Good point. Because Luther would say, I can't believe my heart. I'm going to trust the promises that when I hear the word of God and his promise whoever believes the forgiveness of sins, that I'm, I'm going to believe that uh, regardless of what I'm, what I'm feeling. So, and he would say that as long as you avail yourself of the means of grace, the Holy Spirit's going to be working, even in a way that I may not feel it. Like when I go to communion, you know, um, do, I, do I feel, but I, but I believe that the Holy Spirit is working in that meal in order to strengthen my relationship and, and my faith um, in a way that is beyond my cognitive ability to, to articulate it. So, but one of the ways that denominations have lost generations is then they don't see that translate into how people act outside of church. And that's what I'm talking about, the heart. If it's your heart, it ought to translate outside of, outside of church. And, and that's... Um, and that's where probably Lutherans and many Christians have been weakest, except in the holiness churches and Pentecostal churches. Um, where I say weakest because the whole thing of sanctification, living the Christian life, has, especially for Lutherans, I'm baptized, I went through confirmation, I go to church, um, I'm, I'm good. And, and that is... Um, Will God still accept that person? Um, I have to believe he will. But is that person living the kind of life that God wants him to live? Absolutely not. And that's why Luther, in terms of, because of his own life and his own struggles, that's why he felt that in the third, in the explanation to the fourth question on baptism in the small catechism, he says, what is the daily significance of baptism? It means that the old Adam within me, with all its sins and evil lush, should by daily contrition and repentance be put to death and die, so that day after day a new person can come to live before God with righteousness and purity forever. Luther felt that that had to be a daily a daily discipline. How much of that is free will to do that? See, that's the other thing. Do I have, do I have the choice? To to um, to do that, um, and um, 
like your spiritual discipline. Um, is that is that necessary for me to maintain my spiritual life? For me, it is. I need every day. I have I have my devotional books, my time that I set aside in order that I can once again reorient myself so that I remind myself on a daily basis. And I think on that point, at least for me, Luther, what Luther has to say is, is important. Uh, we're getting close. So uh, let's, can we go ahead and talk about um, foreknowledge? Uh, these, what's up on the screen right now? Um, this would be, why should Christians have made comments? This is all you. This is your... You put this up there. <laughs> you know, but this comes from you. Yes, well, you're quoting my hand. Yeah, I, mean, I didn't know what your goal yeah, was. Well, I, I guess yeah. uh, in terms of, of why, you know, obviously you took on this assignment to teach right. this, and, and your, um, your handouts, I became, uh, especially as I reviewed them, were really great. Wonderful. I wasn't able to fully appreciate them in those class two and class four because a lot of that was going over my head in a, in a way. And so I thought um, the um, uh, why should Christians um, and why do philosophy right, or, yeah, and, yeah. and the length and helps yeah, you out. Yeah. So, so um, it's interesting. So I kind of already said the main thing I wanted to say okay. with the. Um, comic at the beginning, like, you know, one reason to do philosophy, for Christians to do philosophy, is to uh, counter arguments that might mislead people, right, um, and have reasonable things to say when you encounter an argument, say that, well, you can't have free will if God knows the future. You know, that's something a lot of people have thought, and you will, and it's nice to have something to say about that, right? Um, uh, I, I also think, you know, um, you were mentioning Melanchthon some, uh, in, in that book you have. It talks about how Melanchthon um, thought that the Holy Spirit could use philosophical arguments to actually uh, bring people to belief in Christian doctrine. So the Holy Spirit could actually work through a philosophical argument. So I think that's another interesting, uh, interesting thing. Yeah. On heaven and hell, what do Lutheran sermons say? What is the purpose of talking heaven and hell? Uh, destination because it matters... Um, well, you can't avoid, um, you cannot avoid it if you read the New Testament. You know, there, people are called to account. Uh, there are parables that graphically illustrate the dangers of not being prepared. The, the story of the ten virgins. Uh, five were prepared, five were not. The rich man in Lazarus, a powerful illustration of how important it is to uh, to not place yourself um, in the grip of material possessions. Um, the um, Saint Paul, in the uh, in his letters, makes it very very clear that the Christian life is a life of integrity and of kindness and of living out the fruits of the Spirit. Um, the um, and that these laundry lists of virtues and of of sins um, are graphically documented in, in Paul's writings. So um, and then uh, what we did in the class we took a look at 
um, the um, how other Christians uh, deal with the afterlife and um, the um, the book um, this uh, the end times. I think uh, really provides a great illustration of what we do know and what we don't know about um, heaven and where we go. We treat with some suspicion um, those who go on a a tour of heaven, um, which is um, heaven is for real. Um, This is odd. And, and in terms of people who have had these experiences, what they call heaven, often is culturally and socially determined what they see in heaven. So does God? So so we don't. We really don't don't know. I don't know, and I'm in my own personal statement. I'm going to deal with that. Tell. And, yes. And the church is, especially like in the Renaissance period, I mean, you go to Europe and you see an assisting chapel, one whole wall is the final judgment. In the baptistery in Florence, there's all these vivid, beautiful paintings of what happens to those during the judgment and parting of it. But then I was raised with a fear of the Lord. And, and yeah. today, our... The church in general, our church doesn't really preach a fear. It's all love and grace and mercy, which is wonderful, but, you know, people used to be afraid to do things that were wrong. Because, you know, Did it keep them from doing wrong? I don't know. More people used to go to church than do now. I mean, I was taught you go to church, it's the right thing to do, and, and now it's, it's choice. And, yeah, it's not fun. It's not cool. I'm not. It shouldn't all be that way. But I feel like we don't have today. It's it's everything. You can have it your way. You know, whether it's Burger King or McDonald's supersize or everything. And, and it's not. It's watch your weight. Watch your calories. You know, your your health. And it just it's everything. It's, it's the culture we live in today. And, and I and I think that we live with as much fear and judgment um, right now in, 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 our, in our world um, without the hellfire and damnation. Um, there's, um, people live in fear. A lot of that fear is covered by hyperactivity, by alcohol, and by drugs, by a lot of things. But I, I think that the, um, the criminal action of God is still alive and well. And part of preaching is to um, make sure that that anxiety is, is tapped and made aware so that the good news of the gospel and the assurance that we are forgiven uh, becomes real. Um, the amount of divorce, family dysfunction, um, white collar crime um, it's it's, um, it's it's there and it's a matter of I think making people aware of their underlying fears that allow the gospel to have the time to purchase um, we need to get on to our uh, statements if, if, yeah. and again both of us are available if you want to 
I had a wonderful conversation with somebody this last week who wanted some time, and I'm more than happy to meet with any of you to talk about Philip, you want to go first? Oh, okay, sure. No coin flip this time. <laughs> I won the coin flip on the first one. Perpetual victory here. Um, first of all, thank you all for coming to this class, um, asking great questions. It was, I think it was uh, great to get the interaction uh, between us. So, um, Okay, so... Uh, I'm going to talk about what I, my, you know, my personal views on some of the topics we covered. One thing I won't say much about is the um, um, the end times that uh, Pastor Phil covered, and that's because I that's something I don't know a lot about, haven't looked into that much. Um, so I just accept, you know, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I believe in the life everlasting, but the details on that one, I I don't know, um, and. So I and I would say I think that's a reasonable place to be on any of these issues. You know, it could be either you haven't ha- looked into it that much, uh, how freedom and foreknowledge fit together, or you did but you couldn't figure it out, and so you say, well, it must work somehow, but I don't know the details. I think it can be reasonable to say I don't know the details of any of these topics, and that's what I say in the case of the, uh, the end time. So, um, but on so so. I'll go through some of the topics. So, uh, on universalism, right, to claim that all will eventually be saved. Uh, first, I, I hope very much that it's true. Um, you know, I, like, like God, I want all men to be saved. You know, um, I very much hope it's true. Um, I'm inclined to suspect that it's true, uh, but I wouldn't say that I believe that it's true. Um, and that's because I think the evidence is very mixed on this issue. So, if we looked at the biblical evidence, the biblical evidence seems really like it pushes both ways. There are verses where if you just looked at that verse, you would say, nope, universalism is not true. Some people will eternally be in hell. There's verses where you read it and you go, oh, everyone will be reconciled to, to God, right? So um, I think there, you know, that alone should make, so make us you know, uncertain. Um, I also worry about the fact that uh, the church... You know that historically the church has mostly taught that universalism is false. The majority of the the big theologians and big thinkers have thought it's false. So I don't want to confidently say, oh, they got it wrong, right? So that's something else that gives me give me gives me pause. Um, a third thing that gives me pause is um, this connects with what I was saying earlier about the thought that there might be a free choice in the process of conversion is their extra value to freely choosing to be united with God. If you think um, there is a role for free will in this process of salvation, you might think um, being in heaven um, as a result of freely choosing a relationship with God is extra valuable. And universalism might threaten that value, right? So if God says, you know what, I'm going to give uh, Pastor Phil so many years to come around, but if he doesn't, I'm just going to override his free will and make him go to heaven. Um, you know, you might think, uh, well, that limits the value of um, of, of um, salvation, right? Uh, maybe God would do that. Maybe avoiding hell is worth limiting the value of salvation, but there seems like there's a, a cost there, right? Um, something that kind of pushes me toward the pro-universalism side, universalism side is how big of a risk would God take? Would God really risk losing some people forever? You know, um, 
uh, you know, he's clearly willing to risk losing people for a time, right? People who walk away from church or who grow up not believing, right? He's willing to, to lose them for a time, but is he, you know, you know, it seems like a really big risk to say, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm going to allow for free will so much that I'll risk losing this person forever, right? And you might think God would draw the line somewhere and say, no, I'm going to make sure everybody comes out okay. So that's something I see as on the pro, pro-universalism side. Um, okay, second, um, on freedom and foreknowledge, I kind of already tipped my hand on this during the class, but I think they are compatible. I think we can be free even if God does know the future. Um, the way I see those fitting together is that I see God as sort of either from, from the past or from you know, a timeless state, if you like to think of God as outside of time. God sees my choices. He can literally see the future or he can see into time from outside of time. And, um, and the way that works is my choices actually can explain why he's thinking what he's thinking in the past or outside of time. So his, his foreknowledge doesn't threaten my free will, rather my choice actually explains what he was, what he was thinking. Um, so that's the, you know, that's the idea I like there. On the last, on the last topic, uh, on the question of is it rational to believe in God, is it rational to believe in Christianity, I accept uh, the view that Christian beliefs can be properly basic, uh, that you don't need an argument for it to be reasonable to be a Christian. So when I'm in church and I have this powerful experience that makes it seem to me that um, Jesus died for my sins, right? Uh, I think that you know that can justify me or make it reasonable for me in believing to believe that Jesus uh, died for my sins. I don't need an argument, but I also think, in the case of uh, belief in God, at least there are very good arguments. I think we talked about the fine-tuning argument a little bit. I think it's very unlikely we would have gotten a world like this anything like this, and we would, that we would have beings like us if there wasn't a designer. So I also think there are good arguments. Um, okay, and then the question of Pascal's wager. I don't think it makes sense to just directly believe something because it's good for you. So like the fact that heaven is good for me doesn't make it sense, for, doesn't, doesn't itself make it directly okay to just believe in Christianity. But I think it gives me reasons to look for reasons. Right? The fact that it would be good for me to become a Christian, if I wasn't one, say, um, gives me reasons to look and see if there are reasons to become a Christian. So I think it does play that role. Okay, so I'll stop there. Yeah. And before I get into what I'm going to present as my personal beliefs, is the realization that I'm listening to you, is that Luther's position, um, this radical, we are not free to say yes, you can say no, is an extraordinarily small group of Christians who believe that. And if you heard the sermon this morning, um, I think you heard Pastor Harmon talk about choice based on the Old Testament lesson. Um, if, if there was a rigid Missouri Synod Lutheran listening to that sermon, they would have reason to bring him up on charges for, for preaching something that's not Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod doctrine because of the way he would he could defend himself and 
I would certainly defend it in terms of how he presented it. But he made no qualifications in terms of the choice because the Old Testament lesson today, was there any qualification to the choice? Choose you this day whom you're going to serve? Um, it was like, yeah. So, along with the fact that um, God uses, and the Holy Spirit uses all different kinds of ways to bring people to faith. And for some people, it is their emotion that needs to get going in order to create the fear that will say, I, I need something else in order to help me. So, um, this is where I am. Um, the first word, my personal belief, is confusion. The study of the Old and New Testaments leave me confused as to the time, soon to be sure, and nature of Christ's second coming. I'm confused about that. I'm left equally confused about the nature of hell and the nature of heaven. Why? Because the scriptures do not speak with one voice. And as the canon is comfortable with those various stories, by the canon, I mean the people who put together the 66 books of the Bible. They didn't say, ooh, if we put this, you know, we've got a problem with it. That didn't make any difference to them. Um, realizing that God, Holy Spirit, is going to use all different kinds of scriptures in order to communicate his word and will. So I am comfortable with these different images and with even the apocalyptic language, although I understand it to be symbolic. There are hints of heaven in the Old Testament, but nothing like the resurrection or the second coming or hell. A Sheol is the best we get. Uh, and Gehenna, which is a takeoff on, the, on Sheol, used for the place where trash was burned outside the city. It was really kind of a state of suspended animation. Uh, but we do get a sense of, um, in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob's ladder goes where? Um, when God and Satan have their conversation at the beginning of Job, where does that take place? Uh, and then, I know that my Redeemer lives. What comfort this sweet sense. That comes from Job. Uh, it's one of those where you pull out a passage to make it apply to what you want it to apply. The Tower of Babel, it was built up to where? To the heavens, right? Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, um, where Isaiah is transported um, with the, the seraphim and... and uh, the song, holy, 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 Lord, that comes out of Isaiah, and the hot, hot, cold, it's placed on his tongue. And then, of course, Ezekiel chapter 37, the valley of the dry bones. Where, where, where is that valley where all these bones come to life in the resurrection of those bones? So, so there, are, there are hints in the Old Testament. Secondly, I live with the Lutheran paradox of God's mercy and justice. Mercy, on the one hand, time, justice, a, a demanding God that tolerates no unfaithfulness. Scripture. It's so important how we read Scripture. As we talked about the drum, that if you have a drum, you can find drumsticks to beat whatever drum you come up with. Um, hermeneutics is a solution to that, how I read and interpret Scripture, and in that I am thoroughly Lutheran. I believe the scriptures, Old and New Testament, are the, are the cradle of Christ. That's from Luther. And in terms of how literally he interpreted certain parts, he, he was pretty loose on some of that stuff because he really felt the purpose of scripture was to present and hold up Christ and the cross. I believe that God revealed himself as a God of terror and the judgment 
and as a God of tender mercy, always ready to forgive. It's what drove Jonah bananas in Jonah chapter 4 when he looked upon Nineveh and saw that God wasn't going to destroy that wicked city. I mean, you know, he said, Jonah said, I knew that if I, you would, you would forgive them. It's, it's that, wow. Um, I believe that those two diametrically opposed natures of God are met in the person of Jesus Christ, true God and man, and that those two natures collide with explosive force on the cross, where the problem of God is the problem of God. On the cross, we have God going against God. A shorthand definition is that God reveals himself in that dynamic of the law, God on one hand, and the gospel, God on the other hand. And that's why it's so important for Lutherans, anyway, to preach both law, which drives people to the foot of the cross as a beggar, nothing in my hand I bring, so that they can hear finally what the cross is all about. And that's why Luther, you know, was such an advocate of the theology of the cross rather than the theology of glory. What do I believe? Credo et intelligam is Latin for I believe so that I can understand. And that's based on a saying, and that's by Anselm of Canterbury, um, based on a saying of Augustine, of Credo et intelligas, which literally means believe so that you may understand. He said, believe, then you'll understand. And that has been my experience in my life, especially as I have preached and as I have been with people in their journey of faith, it becomes very, very clear that people who have faith, they can understand and they find peace and it's no longer a struggle because they believe. What do I... Uh, And so I live with the Lutheran paradox of God's mercy and justice, and believing in the paradoxical nature of God, I understand the function of law and gospel in my life. That is why the theology of the cross, as Luther defined it in the Heidelberg Disputation, rings so true. Heidelberg Disputation, if you're interested in knowing where that comes from. With certainty, I confess the creeds. From thence he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. Remember that language? I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And undergirding that are the three Lutheran catchphrases so important to me, alone by grace, alone by faith, alone by scripture. When woven together, they provide a marvelous tapestry that hold me firm in my belief. God's grace, undeserved, undeserved, faith, which connects me to that. And when all else fails, I have the scripture that I believe God uses to speak to me. So those three things support me. And so I preach and provide comfort to the dying, to those who have questions. A person who recently lost his spouse talked to Pastor Harmon. And uh, this person quoted what Pastor Harmon said. It was so beautiful. This person was concerned about the spouse. And where was the spouse? He was concerned about it. Went to Pastor Harmon, and Pastor Harmon said, well, you know, I don't know where that person is either, but I'm sure that wherever that person is, God is there also. And when I heard that, it was, that was a conversation this past week, it just went, it just said, yeah, you know, I can live with that. And beyond that, I am not ashamed to claim, to claim what I don't know. There's a lot I don't know. But I know what I believe, and I believe a lot 
based on the promises of God. Um, and I believe that all the promises of God are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul writes in Timothy, that all the promises of God. So, um, any, any questions or response to the two of us? We're, we're about out of time. We can take a couple more minutes if there are questions that you want to ask. Where are you on the free will in salvation, in the conversion process question? Is that one of your agnostic, agnostic I don't know. Areas? I am sure that God, the Holy Spirit, works in all kinds of ways. Right. Uh, my father, um, Missouri City preacher, would have never thought of doing an altar call or appealing to people, but he felt himself to be a soul winner. That was his number one goal in life. And he made it his point, and I think you know, that he would never be the person without finding out where that person was in relationship to their salvation. Um, one of his favorite questions was, um, especially when he got older and looked pretty feeble, he would kind of grab his chest and, to a person at a drugstore, you know, if, if, I, if I would fall down right now, could you tell me how to get to heaven? <laughs> What's going on here? Um, and uh, he would also, you know, ask me, how do you expect, you know, come out and say, um, people that he meet on the street, at the filling station, uh, his doctor, um, how do you expect to get to heaven? And of course, he was always ready for the good works. You know, well, I've been a pretty good person. Man, he would nail that. I mean, he would just cut the knees off from underneath them in terms of, yeah. So, but my dad um, listened to the Hour of Decision on Sunday afternoons. The Hour of Decision was a radio program where you heard who? Billy Graham. Come on, folks. The Hour of Decision. And of course, decision, decision theology at the St. Louis Seminary right now, in St. Louis, the big no-no is decision theology. That's, oh, we don't want that. And yet Dad listened to that, and he saw how many people made commitments to Christ because they were in that mob mentality, in, in, that, in that atmosphere where their spirit was alive. You could feel it. Now, is that different from the spirit that you feel when there's a stadium of 100,000 people uh, cheering for the Nebraska uh, Cornhuskers? Is it, is it a different kind of spirit? What? We don't know. Absolutely not. So, anyway, that's where I am. That, that, that people, um, I am convinced that the Holy Spirit works all different kinds of ways. And that in terms of my free will, um, yeah, I know that I can will some really bad stuff. And I don't trust my free will. And I know that my free will needs to be checked continually by the reminder that I, I, I need God's word. I need a daily discipline um, for my faith. So, so uh, I have a general uh, observation, perhaps, mm -hmm. whatever. That at the time of Luther, you know, you had the Catholic Church, which was far over here on the right, maybe, or one extreme. And, and had certain unfathomable practices or unacceptable like indulgences. And then Lutherism, Lutheranism looked like the other extreme, but today where do we see Lutherans? In the middle or even 
over here, realizing that Catholic faith has evolved and become more centrist, but the Baptists weren't around in the, the Pentecostals, and the, and so it's different than the topic of this discussion, but and, where, where do we see ourselves, and especially Missouri Synods? And Lutherans are like a big elephant. It really depends upon what part, you know, because... Um, and Lutherans in the public eye, it really depends upon where people have touched Lutheranism. If they've touched uh, ELCA, the liberal part of Lutheranism, there's all kinds of things that go along with ELCA, both positive and negative. If you've touched the Wisconsin Senate part, there's going to be positive and negative things about that. In the Missouri Senate, um, there's also, uh, we have a reputation um, that we... Um, that we live with, um, and that, uh, at least for myself, um, I think all of us, in the, whatever family we're in, I, I'm talking about, you know, there are things that we're not proud of, of our family, and there are things that we're very, very proud of, and I think uh, we're part of it. I, I, I wanted to thank you. Uh, I have some gifts for you. <laughs> um, and I know that, um, I can't imagine this, but I can imagine that maybe, maybe sometime I can that maybe somebody in your classes would fall asleep. And so I want you to be prepared uh, for that eventuality. And what this is, is this is a marshmallow gun. So, you, uh, so if somebody is sleeping, you can very take that in there. And uh, you can, yeah, <laughs> and I gave nice. you plenty ammunition. Oh, good. It came from the bottom of And then for Ned. Uh, to be useful when they're studying for finals. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for Ned, uh, here's, here's a little bit of three year old. Thank you. That's really cool. So thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you all for Thank you for listening to the King of Glory Church Education Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God and His people, grow in faith and love, and live through service and sharing. Visit us on the web at kogva.org.